Grant to us, O Lord, ease to hear your word, eyes to see your truth, and a heart to do your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Though the year is hard to pinpoint, the 1960s are often referred to as the decade of the sexual revolution. A time when the young shed the cloak of convention and threw themselves into social, sexual and drug-induced abandon. A time that shocked Christian and polite society alike. The social revolution led to the so-called permissive society with its familiar slogans, if it feels good, do it, whatever turns you on, and anything goes, a familiar title to theatre-goers. Since the 1960s, it's become popular to think and even to say it's only forbidden to forbid. Indeed, many in the West today have that very mindset. They refuse to accept any values imposed on them from the outside, whether from society or institutions or from God. The familiar refrain is, I'm free to live my own life as I choose, as long as I'm not hurting anybody. And such a mindset tends to reject religion, which is regarded as a relic of the past, authoritarian, divisive and perhaps even harmful. But despite rejecting religion so-called, still people want to hang on to a vague form of spirituality, a spirituality that makes no uncomfortable claims to objective truth or moral demands. It's a spirituality in which the consumer is champion and personal choice is everything. This is the era of mix and and match religion. Make up your own God. A God who never says no. A God who always affirms whatever lifestyle we choose. But curiously, such a God seems to bear an uncanny resemblance to those who invent him. Of course, we've seen this all around us for the last 50 years, and we're not surprised by it. We expect to see it in the world, but when it happens in the church, we're shocked, or at least we should be. And that's what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. There was gross public sin happening in the church, and it was even worse than what you'd expect in Corinthian society. And that's saying something significant. Because Corinth was rife with sexual licentiousness and decadence. Prostitution was even part of the pagan temple rituals. What was happening in the church was that one of their members was having an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul describes this in chapter 5, verse 1, as the kind of immorality that even pagans do not tolerate. But the Corinthians not only tolerated such behaviour, they even boasted about it. It was a source of pride. He was a young man who likely belonged to a family of the wealthy elite and to one of the factions within the church. He would have considered himself an individual and what he did was nobody else's business. He lived for the moment and carpe diem was his motto. He would have even have considered himself rather spiritual, living in the freedom of the gospel and unfettered by the law. 
He was confident that God was only interested in his soul and not his body. So what he did with his body, well, it didn't matter. As long as he was a nice person and he had a kind heart and he didn't harm anyone. This young man could have his cake and eat it too. No wonder he was a local hero in the Corinthian church, a model blend of spirituality and cultural conformity. If he lived today, he'd be a rock star who loved Jesus, Oprah Winfrey and the Dalai Lama, all in equal measure. Inclusion and diversity would be his favourite mantras. He would give flowers to his mum every Mother's Day and he would sing carols in the domain every Christmas. What a legend. But Paul makes it very clear that true spirituality well, it demands holiness and it can never be used as a licence for immorality. So in chapters 5 and 6, Paul challenges the casual acceptance by the Corinthians of this young man's sexual conduct. And he argues that a sinful lifestyle is incompatible with the message of the gospel. Now that seems a rather obvious response. For clearly God's will for us is holiness and not sinfulness. But Paul does not simply argue that it's wrong, so therefore stop it. His argument is more nuanced than that. He argues that immorality is problematic in the church, firstly because sin will destroy a church from the inside. Secondly, sin in the present has consequences for the future. And thirdly, redemption is not just for our souls, it's for our whole selves, body, soul and spirit. As Christians, we are not individuals in isolation. Because we belong to God, we belong to each other. We're members of Christ's body. We share one Holy Spirit, one faith, one Lord and one baptism. If there's public sin among our own, then we're all affected by it. A case in point is the revelations of child sexual abuse and pedophilia perpetrated by clergy and church workers upon the weak and the vulnerable, the very ones they should have been protecting. And if you think that the world recognises this as the sins of a few individuals, it's not so. As far as the world is concerned, institutional abuse is the sin of the church. And as members of Christ's body, the church, we're guilty by association. Now it's easy for us to point to child sexual abuse and to call it out as sin, on that issue the world agrees with us. But when we say to our church members, as we should, that sexual relationships outside the covenant of marriage are sinful and need to be repented of, well that becomes problematic. For the world not only thinks otherwise, but would consider us as bigoted and judgmental for saying so. The temptation, therefore, is to do as the Corinthians did, either ignore it when we see it, or accept it as being culturally normative. To do otherwise, its claim would be considered intolerant and unloving. But we can't afford to wink at the public sin of our own church members. 
And nor can we accept that public morality is the standard for a Christian ethic. To do so would make a mockery of any claim that we follow the teachings of Christ and live under his lordship. It brings shame and slanderous accusation against the name of God in general and Christ Jesus in particular. Public, persistent and unrepentant sin among our own that's winked at and ignored by the church will destroy it. For sin acts like a yeast. It permeates the whole church like a cancer. And by it, all of us are implicated and none of us are unaffected. So Paul makes the point that public sin should be publicly dealt with. Have a look at verse 4. He says that when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, then hand this man over to Satan. Wow. That sounds really harsh, but I don't want you to misunderstand what's happening here. But Paul's not saying that discipline within the church allows us to wash our hands of any responsibility. But we can't say, well, off you go, not our problem anymore. But Paul's saying that without the encouragement and support of the church, Satan will sift this man like wheat and expose his sins for what they are. The purpose of church discipline, therefore, is not to punish, but to restore. As Paul puts it in verse 5, the purpose is so that his sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Sometimes the kindest thing we can do for someone that we love is to stop rescuing them. Let them bear the consequences of their sins. It may be their last hope of restoration. Now, If you're thinking that this all sounds a little bit over the top, I want to reassure you. Firstly, I hope it's clear that no one is saying that our personal sins and failures are grounds for excommunication. If personal sin is a problem in your life, it proves that you are human and that you still have a pulse. The way to deal with that sort of sin is by prayer, confession to God and repentance. Ask God to forgive you and resolve to get it right in the future. And forgiveness is yours. God guarantees that. The discipline for sin that's been spoken about is not personal private sins, but rather repeated, persistent, unrepentant and public sins. Sins that bring shame to God's name, the sorts of sins that our culture may endorse, but God clearly does not. Now, I appreciate that you may think the whole notion of church discipline is judgmental. And I want to acknowledge that in one sense you're right. As Paul asks in verse 12, are we not to judge those inside the church? The question's rhetorical and the implied answer is clearly yes, we should. But Paul doesn't mean that we're to look down on them as though we're somehow superior. Clearly we're not. He simply points out that as Christians we are accountable to God and to one another. To encourage sin by looking the other way is not the virtue of tolerance 
or the compassionate suspension of judgment. It's the failure to speak the truth in love. Of course, judging is always risky business. And it's something that Jesus clearly warned us about in the Gospels. Too easily it can become censorious and hypocritical. Instead of it being a plea for God's standards, it can become a declaration of our own. Ultimately, God is the sole judge of human sinfulness, and anyone outside the church is accountable to him alone. Though as Christians, we do have an obligation to call sin for what it is, and to declare God's gospel of grace, the world is not accountable to us. As Paul says in verse 13, God will judge those outside the church. Inside the church, we should expel the wicked from among us. In chapter 6, Paul goes on to give another reason why a lifestyle of sin is incompatible with the gospel. He makes the point that sin has implications for the future. He's not simply saying that if you're sinful, you'll burn in hell for eternity. Of course, there's truth in that. But if that's all there was to it, then that's where we'd all end up. But Paul is talking to Christians. He made it clear in chapter 3 that Christians will be judged, and whatever's not based on faith in the Lord Jesus will be burnt up and destroyed. We will suffer loss, but nevertheless, we'll be saved. Because salvation is by grace through faith. And despite so much evidence to the contrary, that these Corinthians were in fact Christians. Worldly Christians, immature Christians, deluded Christians, but Christians nonetheless. And part of the reason that they were living as they did is because they had absorbed the culture surrounding them. That they allowed their culture to set the norms by which they lived. They had no clear understanding that this life now is just a fleeting moment in time. It's the pre-trial for the greater reality in eternity. They were behaving like the rest of the world because they thought like the rest of the world. Make no mistake, there is no place in the kingdom of God for the willful, the shameless, and the wicked. And though Paul's list of sin in verses 9 and 10 is far from exhaustive, it's broad enough to include anybody. Sexual immorality is a wickedness, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual. It makes no difference. And wickedness is not limited to sexual sins. It includes theft, greed, drunkenness, slander, deceit. In fact, any idolatry at all will do. And the Corinthians were showing every sign of being indistinguishable from the world. But Paul knows that they are different. He says of them in verse 11, You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. They are not trapped in their sins. They're trapped in their foolishness and immaturity. 
They don't have to live like this. That they're now free to live life without guilt and shame. That slaves not to their sinful desires, but to God. That they now have a freedom in Christ that releases them from the bondage of the law. For the law of the spirit of life had set them free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But that's a message they clearly misunderstood. They thought that freedom in Christ and living by the spirit of God gave them license to live however they wanted. So they had their slogans. Their favourite slogan is in verse 12. I have the right to do anything. Seems clear that the permissive society didn't start in the 1960s, but rather in the AD 60s. Another of their favourite slogans is in verse 13. Food for the stomach and stomach for food. They drawn the conclusion that whether it's sex or eating, both were normal and natural bodily functions. Therefore, nothing about either should ever be considered immoral. Logic like that, well, it's rife within our own culture. But even within our own culture, everybody knows that sharing a meal with someone is a kindness. But sharing sexual intimacy is a physical emotional, and even a spiritual commitment. Nobody's spouse or partner dismisses infidelity. Unfaithfulness is not the expression of a natural body function. It's rightly considered a betrayal. And if we feel guilty about sexual infidelity, such guilt is not imposed upon us by religious scruples, but rather it's a part of who we are. As Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 6, our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now that's not true for Christians only. This is true for everyone. Everyone's been created in the image of God and we've been created body, soul and spirit. These can't be separated any more than the Trinity can be separated. Every part of us belongs to the Lord and we were created to be like him in holiness and not sinfulness. Of course, if you are a Christian, then your union with God is not just by birth, but by union with Christ through the Spirit of God. We are members of Christ's body. So if we unite ourselves with somebody outside the covenant of marriage, we become one flesh with another outside the covenant. Sexual immorality betrays not only our relationship with our spouse, but also our relationship with God in Christ. So we need to flee sexual immorality. We can't afford to flirt with sexual temptation. We need to make sure that our relationships don't develop inappropriate intimacy. We need to guard our thoughts, what we read, what we see on TV and what we access on the internet. Our lives should be sufficiently transparent to be accountable to one another. Now accountability is not there to condemn us, but to protect us and encourage us to live godly and holy lives. Our bodies are important. They are not just vessels 
for our soul and spirit. Our bodies are part and parcel of who we are. And one day, our body will be resurrected to glory or, or judgment, just as Christ was raised from the dead. Until that day, it's worth keeping in mind that your body and mine is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's taken up residence in you and I from the moment we first believed. He's a gift that we've received from God. Therefore, we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to God. He purchased us at a great price, the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us honour God with our bodies. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that you have called us and redeemed us, body, soul and spirit, to be one with you here now and forever, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Forgive us when we sin against you in thought and word and deed, using our bodies not to honour you, but to satisfy our sinful desires. By your word, by your Holy Spirit, by your church, keep us safe from all sin, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Amen.